Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. This is the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this special series, we present sessions from a recent symposium to mark the 50th anniversary of the Australian newspaper. These sessions were recorded with assistance from Sky APAC and Macquarie University. Thanks for the support. The, the news media is a powerful institution in a democratic society, and just as it rightly claims the fourth estate role of scrutinising those in positions of power and authority, so it too needs to be subjected to scrutiny. However, this task poses particular challenges for a media outlet because it requires even-handed treatment of commercial rivals, as well as, from time to time, criticism of itself. In the case of a publicly funded broadcaster such as the ABC, the media proprietor, so to speak, is the government. The daily task of reporting on those who control the ABC's budget has created all sorts of tensions throughout the national broadcaster's history, from its origins in 1932 under the Lyons government right up to its current wranglings with the Abbott government. Nor do governments enjoy providing money to be criticised. To paraphrase George Orwell's Animal Farm, all governments loathe the ABC equally but some governments loathe it more equally than others. This paper is written by a former reporter for the Media Supplement and founding presenter of the Media Report, along with a former media and communications editor for The Age and past contributor to the Australian's Media Supplement. So we know firsthand the peculiarities of reporting on the media. It seems to us simultaneously the easiest and the hardest job in the industry. You have a ready-made contact book the moment you start, beginning with those sitting around you in the newsroom, but you are routinely required to ask hard questions of your boss and to pass judgment on the work of colleagues and competitors alike. You need to interview people who know all the reporting tactics you might be using while being acutely aware of the power of public revelation. Of course, some media reporters are untroubled by these conflicting demands doing their master's bidding by sinking their fangs into any target at which they are directed while closing their eyes to all but the most egregious practices within their own company. The attitude here seems to be all's fun in love and media war. The trouble with this approach is that it profoundly misleads, if not deceives, the audience, who are, if you remember, the party the news media is pledged to serve. We prefer to think of it about, about it this way. It's commonly said that the mark of a civilised country is how it treats its most vulnerable citizens. And in much the same way, it could be said that the mark of a robust media system is how it treats its own industry. The 50th anniversary of The Australian offers a rich history through which to examine the two themes that are pursued in this paper. First, how has The Australian reported its rivals? Fairly? or has it abused its power by unfairly criticising its competitors? Second, is the newspaper capable of rising above self-interest to achieve fair criticism of itself and its parent company? I'll hand over to Andrew. Thanks. <clears throat> so what I'll do now is run through some of the history and bring us up to date on where we're at at the moment. Uh, let me go back to 1999. The Australian's media supplement uh, amounted to a significant investment. 
Uh, it was established in early 1999 under the guidance of Shelley Gare, who consulted to News Limited and uh, did much of the early scoping and hiring, along with the first editor of the section, Elliot Taylor. It was designed to cater for readers interested in the constantly changing media landscape and for readers and for many professionals active in the fields of journalism, marketing and public relations, as well as interested general readers. The business model was founded on display advertising for media recruitment, which gave the section an impetus to become a focal point for those seeking employment in the media, as well as those inside media companies who were offering the positions. So in other words, it became something of a community of interest uh, to which it was hoped people would come back week after week. The advertising then would make sense. It would be uh, something that would attract readers and readers would uh, enter the discourse of media issues. However, it was never explicitly said that this was about influencing the discourse on a national level or about driving agendas. So what we've done to assess the development of the Australian's media section was look at issues from the third week of May from the years 1999, 2004, 2009 and this year, conveniently five years apart, spanning the last 15 years. And they show how a 32-page tabloid lift-out has been reduced over time to a three-page broadsheet inserted within the business section. This is the first one we're looking at. This is in May 2000, sorry, May 1999, uh, just a couple or three or four weeks after the, um, the first edition. So by now it had found its feet and was uh, going full steam ahead. As you can see, a tabloid, interestingly, talking about tabloids a moment ago, it was designed in such a way as to insert itself inside the paper. And um, immediately visually different to the section as we know it today. There were 14 pages dedicated to TV listings. And then the cover story spilt off page one onto page two and three. And you can see this one's about the uh, head of the um, CNN business, Ted Turner. Uh, great example of how in its early days the section was very happy to cover international issues and gave lots of space to international stories. The uh, diary section was then contained on page five, then under the guidance of Jonathan Est, he held the diary for the first few weeks. And uh, Errol Simper then had his column on page four. And you'll see in a moment how Errol's column has morphed into a format along with uh, another columnist who we're very happy to have, very lucky to have with us today, Mark Day. And they've occupied a format that has been a real stalwart of the paper for many years. There was lots of room in the early days for long features. 1,500 word features were standard fare and they covered a wide range of issues and at 32 pages there was lots of space. This is uh, one I happened to write, it was about uh, Channel 31 and how it was developing and progressing in Melbourne. It was a distinctly non-commercial story, it was about a fairly esoteric topic, but we were given lots of space in those early days to write those kinds of stories. And then there was the advertising two very healthy pages of recruitment ads and in fact this was the business model in the early days. It was about recruiting people to the recruiting um, advertising which attracted readers because of course we all know that journalists 
love seeing what's on offer in the media. They still do it, although, of course, they have to look a little harder to find jobs. And we had not just those two pages, but there was another half page, very interestingly, of universities advertising through the media section to recruit students to university media-related courses. Let's go forward now to 2004 very quickly. We've moved to a broadsheet, then six pages long. It's getting more newsy. It's creeping into the business section or close to it. It's still a very much separate section and at eight pages is distinct from the business section but sits alongside it and the stories are beginning to get more business-like. As you can see here, a mixture of briefs and news filled the section inside. Still a fair bit of space, but the stories are shorter in length. And a full broadsheet page for advertising in 2004. Still pretty healthy, and these are good journalist jobs, some of which you don't see the likes of so much these days. I think there's an ad for a sub-editor, for example. And then the diary section, which moves into this format, which, as I said, has become the the standard format for this page and has remained so to this day with Errol Simpa sharing space with Mark Day and the diarist who was then Amanda Mead. 2009, again, the same broadsheet format looking quite similar to 2004. Six, eight pages has been reduced to six. It's even more business-like now and more newsy. Here's the inside page, again a mixture of briefs and news stories. There are less news stories. One of the casualties was the specially designated marketing page. The section is now formally known as media and marketing, but by 2009 has lost the dedicated marketing page, although there are marketing stories throughout the section. The once healthy broadsheet page of advertising has now been reduced to just one ad. And tellingly, not for one of the mainstream publications, but for editor of the independent publication, The Monthly. And there it is again, that same format of the diary with Mark Day and Errol Simpler's columns in 2009. I'll let you take up the story. All right, by May this year, the section was only three pages long and fully contained within the business section. The second second page retained the decade-long format with the diary and the two columns by the highly experienced, well-connected Mark Day and the delightfully lugubrious Errol Simper, though if you believe the latter's columns only by the merest thread. The diary was now the domain primarily of the current media editor, Shari Markson, on the front page were four news stories, two of which were about the business of the media, while one reported the sacking of the New York Times editor, Jill Abramson, and the fourth provided the latest developments in the long-running chaser dog mounting defamation case. On the third and final page, there were six relatively straightforward news stories about the business of the media. As to the content and the culture of the media section today, it continues to break news about the media industry. For example, uh, Markson's articles on the 10th and 12th of May about internal Fairfax Media documents outlining the company's financial difficulties and strategies for dealing with them. But the severely reduced space means, first, that many features that characterise the earlier years are missing. There are no regular letters to the editor and little space for outside opinion pieces. The range of issues and events covered has narrowed 
The mainstream media, news media industry is covered, but there is relatively little about new independent startups and about what's happening either in the blogosphere or the Twitter sphere. A regular column charting the Twitter sphere has been dropped. There is now less reporting on the relationships between the makers of media and the consumers and how this relationship is undergoing radical change. There is relatively little about the many complex issues that media work throws up, such as the changing nature of privacy or the difficulties for journalists of protecting confidential sources in a post-Snowden world of mass surveillance. Similarly, other parts of the media industries, including advertising, public relations, media buying, content marketing, and the film industry, are covered patchily. If you wanted to know about what's going on in these areas, you're probably better served today by online websites such as Mumbrella. On the question of even-handed coverage of commercial rivals, the media section has become markedly, sometimes floridly, partisan. In the diary of the first issue of the year, Darren Davidson welcomed readers after the summer break with the words, let's keep it clean and above the belt. Now, the weekly diary has long served dollops of media gossip, but even by industry standards, diary in 2014 has not only routinely hit below the belt, but has frequently directed its gaze there. Which federal politician has found new love, asked an item on the 24th of February about a former minister who was dating his chief of staff after separating from his wife in 2012. If you struggled to see the necessity of that item, you probably shook your head at a 30 June item offering a mock classified listing on the dating app Tinder for rival Financial Review columnist Joe Aston. An even more ham-fisted attempt at humour, assuming that was the goal, was the practice of running attacks on the ABC in the form of mock corrections for errors the newspaper believed the ABC should have made. A media section staff member, Nick Lees, who in 2011 was welcomed as, quote, our amazing new diarist, had left in early 2014 for a role as a corporate affairs spokesman for the ABC and so was subjected to several items of ridicule and a pillaring of his journalistic practice. Where Lee's sin, sin seemed to be that he had gone to the dark side of public relations, as if that was a first for the industry, more alarming was the treatment of two former news executives, Kim Williams, who'd been the company's chief executive in Australia until last August, and Ken Cowley, who devoted most of his working life to news, including 27 years as the local chief executive. Williams was quoted in a Good Weekend profile on the 12th of April, questioning the lack of accountability at senior editorial levels for the commercial losses suffered by The Australian and was swiftly rebuked in a diary item two days later. Quote, it's worth pointing out that the newspaper has made losses approaching $30 million in only one year in its 50-year history, and that happened to coincide with Williams' brief reign at News Corporation Australia. Given that we now know definitively the extent and frequency of The Australian's financial losses, from the newspaper's own historical account that it's been publishing each day leading up to the 15 January, July anniversary, this item does seem somewhat beside the point. In an interview with the Financial Review on a Saturday the 31st of May, Ken Cowley made several remarks critical of the company in general and of the recent elevation of Lachlan Murdoch to co-chair of News Corp and 21st Century Fox in particular. Two days later, he was on the front page of The Australian saying that where he'd been quoted saying The Australian was pathetic, what he really meant was that it was the best newspaper in the country. 
and that his questioning of Lachlan Murdoch's business acumen was not a true reflection of his views. Then followed a second article in the media section criticising Cowley's own business acumen and bolstering Lachlan Murdoch's via lavish tributes from media and business heavyweights James Packer, Jerry Harvey and Michael Miller. What to make of this? Well, seldom has the Australian been accused of pursuing a less is more strategy. If commercial rivals, whether Fairfax Media, Nines, David Gingell, the ABC or the Mail Online, have been closely scrutinised and their every flaw excoriated, very little similar scrutiny appears to have been directed at News Corporation Australia, and it's hard to recall articles that have been critical of the Australian itself. Rather, embarrassingly extravagant praise has been directed upward at the company's dear leader. In a lengthy comment piece on the 26th of May, the media editor wrote that not only was Rupert Murdoch, and I quote, the most successful publisher the world has ever seen, but that he has proved himself to be a visionary in a media industry largely populated by lesser executives who show more reservation than courage, more anxiety than insight, and more uncertainty than solutions. In the latest issue of The Monthly, Margaret Simons has urged media commentators to stop talking about the Australian because that only feeds what she terms its narcissistic impulses. And she swiftly earned herself schoolyard sarcasm from the cut-and-paste section and finger-wagging from Gerard Henderson in last weekend's newspaper. Now, the Australian's influential role in national affairs continues to merit discussion, but her point surely carries some weight. In the Australian media, has there ever been another media outlet whose editor-in-chief with a Daily Leader article and the services of hundreds of journalists at his disposal, feels the need to be quoted so frequently in his own newspaper. Account of the time of the number of times Chris Mitchell's name has been mentioned in the Australian over the past two years has been compared to the number of times Andrew Holden, the editor of The Age's name, has been mentioned in his outlet. The former has been mentioned almost three times as often as the latter. And that point, I'll hand over to Andrew on the ABC. And I'm going to be rapidly editing as I go because we've had a effectively wind up. So I'll cut things short very, and move through this very quickly. What, what we've done is look at a couple of case studies of how the Australian has covered issues to address these issues of how it covers its rivals and how it covers itself or its parent company. And one of these case studies is how the Australian's media section has looked at the ABC over years. I'll cut a very long story short by saying that in its early days, the ABC was covered with, I think, scepticism rather than uh, an outright sense of hostility that tends to characterise a lot of the coverage now. There was critical coverage, and when, in the paper we go through several examples of that critical coverage. And you'll recall that in the late 1990s, uh, the board was being dramatically stacked by the Howard government and the board then appointed Jonathan Shire as the managing director. This heralded a very turbulent period of The Australian and as reporters we were free to cover it. But we were free to cover it in the sense that we were out in the coverage looking for the impact that the uh, managing director had on the viewers and the audience of the ABC. We were not there seeking regime change or a change in what the in, or trying to bring the ABC down. We were arguing very strongly that what was happening inside the ABC was for the detriment to the detriment of ABC audiences. 
and that is what distinguished the coverage. And as we've gone back and looked at several of the examples of things were written then, there were, for example, stories written about uh, how horrified we were at the way in which Media Watch was being tampered with because the format that was serving audiences well uh, was being diminished by other approaches to covering, uh, to having a Media Watchdog program in the ABC. So, in a sense, we were covering it as critical friends. And the point we're making in this paper, and we've detailed it in, uh, inside the paper, is that that is a stark contrast to what's going on now. The ABC is covered in a very hostile way, and uh, we've gone about um, documenting some of those examples. There are recurring themes in their coverage. These include media watch, bias, overly generous conditions and salaries, the inappropriateness of government subsidies for what should be commercial media activities. There's the coverage, the ongoing coverage in a hostile way of the Australian network, the behaviour of individual presenters, the activities of the chaser team, tardiness in doing whatever the Australian considers to be the right thing, the ABC's coverage of the asylum seeker issue and the Snowden revelations. There's anger about lateness and weakness of public apologies and the composition of various programs. Uh, one insider at the newspaper told us while we were researching this that the Australian likes to ask questions, for example, why are there 40 people working on Media Watch when really what that uh, fails to understand is that uh, only a few of those people are core people of the Media Watch team. Others are brought in to uh, assist on the program over time. One small example that we've documented of the ways in which the paper doesn't really give due weight to the reality of what's going on inside the ABC today. Uh, the um, oh, look, I'll hand over. Just uh, bearing in mind the fact right, that we're I'll do. Time. We're basically out of time, so okay. yeah. right. I'll make a. I'll sub on the run. coverage of it on the run. Coverage of the phone hacking issue. Um, need to say up front, covering an issue of this kind, this scale, is about the most difficult thing for a media company to do when it concerns itself. Uh, there has certainly been some good reporting in the paper about the issue, but after initial statements of regret about phone hacking, the newspaper has consistently sought to minimise discussion about the many disturbing issues arising from phone hacking and about the network of apparently improper influence between the company, various governments and the police force. Um, it's also attacked, by and large, uh, proposals for reforming the system of media accountability. Critics uh, in this context have been dealt with in two main ways. One is to attack them personally, I'm, I'm, and the examples here we have are David McKnight, uh, his book um, about Rupert Murdoch, a local uh, academic and journalist and overseas, uh, Tom Watson, who co-authored a book um, with Martin Hickman called Dial M for Murdoch. The third, the other method is to ignore the uh, critic, and I'm thinking here primarily of uh, Rodney Tiffin's exhaustive and fully documented and damning book about Rupert Murdoch that, as far as I can see, has been ignored in the newspaper, and yet I'm going to read quickly Tiffin's conclusion. Sorry? And the Sydney Morning Herald and in The Age. Um, uh, the phone hacking and bribery scandal engulfing News Corp and some of its executives employ and employees is the biggest media-related scandal in the history of English-speaking democracies. The scandal is evidence that media power corrupts as much as any other power. It is an ingrained habit of mind for us to think of the press as a protector of democracy rather than a threat to it. It is just, a much, is just as much a part of making democracy work better to make media power 
accountable as it is to make government power accountable. And to conclude, I'll hand over to Andrew. So one paragraph to sum up. What are we saying? Well, the conclusion we're drawing is the Australian now is more likely to attack individuals and to adopt a sneering tone. It tends to pillory those who criticise News Corp, often regardless of the merits of the original criticism. And if the target of the attack responds, the newspaper floods the zone with increasingly tendentious nitpicking until even the most interested reader has lost sight of the original point of the debate. The whole soul-wearying process brings to mind an image of wrestling with a pig. The pig may enjoy it, but in the end, everyone and everything is covered in mud. The reputation for integrity of the media section then has dissolved, or at least is dissolving. The number of stories that could be fairly described as the work of a watchdog is far outnumbered by those that are the work of a lapdog and especially an attack dog. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.